From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody, Strategy Director at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking Aurum launch a new first-of-its-kind account verification tool for FedNow. We're joined by Stephanie, their CEO, who talks us through precisely what it is they've built and what that process has been like to build on top of these FedNow rails for the first time. Metrobank have secured a rescue deal but look to sell off £3 billion of its residential mortgage book. We talk through some of the sort of historical issues that Metrobank have faced, how they've got to where they are now and what the future might look like. And what do you think of Nationwide's new branding? We're joined by a member of the Nationwide team to talk us through what it is they're trying to achieve and, and kind of what it is more broadly that they're looking to do in the market. We get into all this and much more on today's show. Back after these messages. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider, 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Commercial banking is changing faster than many banks can keep pace with. The innovation that's been unleashed by digital technologies and fintechs has transformed what commercial banking looks like today. In our brand new report, in association with Infosys Finical, we explore the new generation of commercial banking, how value chains are being transformed, and what banks need to do to thrive in this new ecosystem. A must-read report for anyone in commercial banking, we combine our insights with those of 14 thought leaders from across financial services to break down the current situation, the catalysts of change, and what impact it will have on the industry. Don't miss out. Download your copy today at 11fs.com forward slash commercial banking. Welcome to episode 793 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three fantastic guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, a massive Fintech Insider hello to Stephanie Kirkpatrick, CEO and founder at Aurum. Um, Pleasure to have you on the show, Stephanie. Please tell our listeners a little bit more about you and, and Aurum, please. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me uh, for round two of this conversation. Um, hi, everybody. I'm the founder and CEO of Aurum. Um, Aurum provides the simplest API for fast, reliable payments. And now, uh, this week, instant account verification, which, of course, we'll talk to you more uh, in this episode about what we've been building on this new product. We're obsessed with solving the time-to-money problem in the U.S., and I think it's just a shocking statistic that more than half of Americans can't pay an unexpected $1,000 bill And most adults have very little in savings. And so the concept in the U.S. of instant access to money is a total myth. And right now, consumers and businesses aren't really thinking about how their money moves from point A to point B. They just realize that they need it faster and instantly. And that's the job to be done for Aurum. So we work on the back end to make that experience seamless. And our single unified API unlocks access to all the different payment rails um, here in the U.S., including, and I think importantly, the newest ones, RTP, ACH, same-day ACH, wires and now fed now. So we're excited to be here and talk more about it. Super exciting to, to have you back on the show. So thank you for taking the time, especially as you've alluded to in, in a pretty busy week. So looking forward to getting your take on the news. Also joining us and making an exciting debut on the podcast is Mandy Beach, Director of Retail Services at Nationwide. Thanks for joining us, Mandy. Always great to have a, another face on the show. You've also had a busy week, which we'll discuss later, but could you introduce our listeners to yourself and, and your role at Nationwide, please? Yeah, um, same for me. Thank you very, very much for the invite. I can't wait to have the conversation today. So, um, yes, I work for Nationwide Building Society and my role is predominantly to deliver to the the frontline services to our customers. And that means looking after our branch network, 606 branches, um, our contact centres, our back office, of digital, social, mobile chat. So so really getting the opportunity to be as close to the customer as I possibly can. And that's through the delivery of that through our frontline teams. Awesome. I'm sure you have a ton of super interesting perspectives to share. So thank you for joining us and, and looking forward to getting your take on the news. And last, but by no means least, we are delighted to welcome Unisa Zaman, CEO of Unisa Finance. Um, thanks for joining us, Anissa. Great to have you on the show. Would you mind giving our listeners a quick introduction to you and, and what you're working on, please? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So 
As mentioned, I'm CEO of Anisa Finance, a financial literacy platform dedicated to providing financial awareness to Muslim women globally. So we're based in the UK, as well as markets across the Middle East. And we've served a plethora of different women across the globe, but more specifically working with fintechs and government institutions in terms of delivering that level of financial awareness. To date, we've helped over 10,000 women uh, learn more and increase their level of financial awareness, working with institutions like UN Women and the World Economic Forum. What a fantastic resume. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us and looking forward to getting your take on the news. And with that, let's get into the news. Our first story we've taken from Payments Dive, but we've seen it in lots of places as well. Aurum launched first of its kind account verification tool for America's FedNow. Verify is the first ever product built on top of FedNow, the instant payment service launched in July by the US Federal Reserve. It allows businesses to determine within 15.15 seconds whether a bank account is open and valid before initiating payments. It also provides real-time data as to why an account may have failed. An acuity study in 2020 revealed the cost of failed payments to the global economy could be as high as $118 billion. Aurum and FedNow hope to challenge this by revolutionising the account verification process in the US. Stephanie, obviously going to come to you first on this. Can you tell us a bit more about exactly what Verify is, how it works and why you're so excited about it? Sure. I mean, as you said, we are very much revolutionising something that here in the US has been incredibly outdated and challenging. So this week, uh, we are excited that we launched the first ever to market product built on top of FedNow with our solution Verify. This patented technology verifies business and consumer bank accounts within 15 seconds or less and determines whether the account is open and valid before initiating payments. Now, traditionally, uh, and frankly, currently, businesses have used a range of antiquated solutions to verify bank accounts, including incredibly slow micro deposits here in the U.S. to typically takes a couple of days or more, batched historical data, which is really yesterday's information when I need to know something right now, and then the manual entry of, you know, end user login credentials. How many times have you had to reset a password when you're trying to figure out bank credentials? All of those things inject a ton of friction and frankly cause a lot of problems um, in terms of, of account verification. Any one of these processes can take days. And in many cases, there's a low fidelity of accuracy. So it leads to, as you just said, um, failed payments and failed payments themselves cost the global economy over $100 billion each year. So that feels like a place to really spend time, right? Because these are preventable problems. Now, alongside that, the launch of FedNow, which in the U.S. is a brand new payment rail we're going to talk more about, has allowed us to build a new technology. So this isn't just about moving money faster. It's about putting new tech on top of those faster payment rails to leverage the new capability and provide real-time account information to businesses. What I love about this is this really rich data layer so that when you do a verification with Verify, there's information in the inquiry that helps us determine what's going on. What's the status? Is the account open or closed? Why was it closed? And more rich information um, than you could possibly had in the sort of current traditional versions of things that folks are using today. So naturally, um, we're really excited. We're also thrilled that Verify will cover 100% of all US-based consumer and business bank accounts. Coverage has been a massive challenge. And so this is a big step forward in the industry, especially where invalid credentials, friction, and fraud are, are really painful. Um, and we're just incredibly thrilled to be on the tip of the sphere of next-generation innovation and building on top of what is uh, very new to market here in the U.S. in terms of FedNow and instant payments. So lots to come in this arena. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic achievement. I suppose I'd love to understand whether you've wanted to build this capability for a while, but previous rails haven't made it possible? Like, as in, are you are you launching this now because FedNow's here or, or kind of have you been planning to do it for a long time and, and the stars have just aligned kind of the two things? What, what kind of came first, the idea or FedNow, I suppose? Well, the idea has been one we've been thinking about because as folks who focus on instant payments and payments broadly, we have a unique insight, which is what do our B2B and business customers struggle with the most? And one of the things they struggle with is account onboarding. Like actually people sometimes still have stacks of canceled or voided checks, and that's their means of sort of onboarding an account for payment verification. So there was just such a signal from the customers we were working with. And yes, we have another you know, instant payment service here in the US called RTP. It's been around since 2017, but really only in recent years has it been sort of more broadly adopted. 
But what we love about FedNow is that it opened up capabilities with smaller local banks in communities across the U.S. Not everybody in the U.S. banks in the top 10 or 20 or even 200 banks. And so for Verify to be as successful as it is at launch and to really have broad reach, um, we thought it was really important to align the stars with not only instant payments broadly, but also systems like FedNow that are reaching a much broader and really important population. So increased accessibility enables consumers and businesses in these communities who bank with smaller organizations to more fully participate in our financial system, right? Not just instant account verification. And for me, I'm actually a certified financial planner uh, by training. This opens up so much more opportunity for financial inclusion. And it just it's one of the reasons that we get really excited. No, understandably so. And I guess, you know, what have your learnings been from the process of building on top of on top of this new rail, right? Like as in, as you said, you're the first people to build product on on top of it. I don't know if any of our other listeners are sort of sat there with ideas for like things they could build on top of FedNow, but like what what have you taken from that process? What has it been like to, to work with them? Well, if you back up in time, FedNow actually just came into market, right? And so RTP has been around a little bit longer. And one of our learnings is that people were assuming RTP and FedNow weren't useful for a variety of reasons because either they have, you know, coverage challenges, they're not in every bank or Maybe, you know, the way you would do a sizable transaction that might otherwise go on a wire would look different. And so there's been some resistance to thinking about them as new and innovative. And we saw that resistance as opportunity because to date, nobody else has built anything um, on top of these systems that isn't simply a money movement solution, right? Plenty of businesses now, luckily, are starting to pick up and want to move money instantly for a variety of reasons. That time to money problem we obsess about it's getting a headline moment. But what hasn't happened yet is actual innovation in financial services to change the way current behaviors and activities work. And so our learning is that when somebody leans out, that means there's an opportunity that nobody else is seeing. And being first in that opportunity is a huge advantage, in particular because we're in a position to patent and have patented how this technology works and have that first mover advantage of working really closely with the folks that built the system and be able to get closer to the metal, so to speak, on the data layer and other pieces um, that really drive value in the product that we're building. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can I can totally see the value in that. And from what you've described, it sounds like your solution has a lot more sort of data complexity. We have you know, confirmation of payee in the UK, um, but you know, this feels like a sort of slightly smarter version of that. But you know, Mandy, from the UK perspective, like you have we seen impact from things like confirmation of pay? Do you think has that changed experiences for for your customers on the ground? It, it it is interesting when I hear you talk because I kind of walk immediately in the shoes of the customers that are on the receiving end of this. And what what I can tell you is that kind of walking in and opening any kind of service product, whatever, is people want everything at the touch of a button now, don't they? When you talk about that kind of speed, we shouldn't underestimate that from a service perspective. It's really important. Accepting that you've got all the necessary checks as you describe. So, it's, so I'd love to hear a bit more about this one um, over time. But confirmation of payee, you know, trusting where you're sending your money has never been, you know, something that is, is on everybody's minds. And when you talk fraud, you know, that education point is being critical. The thing that we've had to really make sure is people are reading. Like those disclaimers are there to, to protect. And, and you can become blind to them over time. So it's really, really key that we were dropping in, you know, regular reminders to do it. But confirmation of payee has been what I would describe as a game changer from a security point of view and trust. It's been, it's been you know, super important. And we do loads around fraud education. But when when you hear, you know, what you're describing there, Stephanie, it's, it, it's, it's really, really key that we continue to evolve to keep people as safe as possible. I think that's exactly right, right? Trust and safety. When we're talking about payments, so often, especially here in the US where we've just had limitations, the sender and the receiver haven't communicated about the exchange of funds that, that's about to happen. And the other mechanisms, to your point, Mandy, they're not consumer first. They're not experience first. They're slow, antiquated. So we really had to look at two sides of a coin, which is solving a $100 billion pain point, but also doing it in a way that's seamless, frictionless. You know, there's no user involved in a process like this. It is instantaneous. And I think elevating the trust, safety, and security and certainty of an account is so critical. And now it's alongside all the work that's being done in the US for identity and KYC and other things. 
it lives at the account level in terms of verification, but it's an important input um, in basically any financial transaction. Anissa, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Like, you know, what, what's been your your impression of of FedNow more broadly and, and kind of the offering that Stephanie's described? I think it's certainly an exciting time. I, I mean, I can speak to what's going on in the Middle East with regards to RTP more specifically, but also the offerings that are sort of trickling down from the US and elsewhere, it's an exciting market to be working across. And I think these offerings are really expanding the horizon of what fintech looks like here and also access to finance. And when we talk about financial inclusion, I think when we're looking at different markets, it looks very different, globally speaking. Um, So I think the access to the finance, I think the element and something that's really interesting actually to tap into is how these systems are used in said market. So for example, the infrastructure in the Middle East and more specifically across the GCC looks very different to say the UK or the US. So having uh, networks, having systems that are very much integrated are incredibly important to allow for the sort of emission of fraud or things that th- like that that can occur. Um, and I think obviously when we think about fraud, has certainly been very high levels of such over the last few years in markets like the UK in tapping into sort of having that access to finance of the vulnerable, of the elderly and such. And that's something that certainly is being looked at across these markets, but also being tackled at a very top down level because of the integration of the government in systems like this as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Stephanie, I suppose when it comes to the US, the thing I'm always interested in from a kind of cultural perspective is this tension between like the private and and the state, the private sector and, and the state. You, know, you kind of see from an academic perspective, you know, surveys seem to suggest that trust in government is like at an all time low. But, you know, we've got this launch of this massive, you know, potentially game changing federal system. So how how much is that impacting do you think customer uptake of, of products like FedNow do people kind of see federal reserve offerings as, as separate from the government like can you talk us kind of through kind of that nuance from a from an American consumer's perspective well it's very interesting from like an American consumer perspective I bet if you surveyed 100 Americans they've never heard of FedNow unless they work in payments right so I think it's one of those things that like you get used to writing a check you get used to having a bank account Um, You get used to being able to swipe a credit card and you don't necessarily think about, is that government owned? Is it government controlled? And so I think with FedNow in particular, and again, RTP has been around for a few years, its ownership structure is different. It's owned by the top 20 banks. I guess it's a big question. Do you trust the top 20 banks more than the government? I don't know. Uh, Not for me to speculate on, but I don't think that consumers think about it as um, government owned. I think what consumers think about is, hey, Amazon can get me a package same day in, in a lot of cities under an hour, I can get a massage on demand from an app in my home in most major cities. I don't really care how you do it, but I need access to my money at night, on the holidays, on weekends. And today, the system is nine to five, Monday through Friday, because it's tied to banking infrastructure. So I don't think the average American is thinking um, so much about who provides it. They're just thinking about how do I get access to it? And that, I think, is important because it's showing that there's an incredible demand and, frankly, necessity from a liquidity perspective and from a safety and security perspective from a financial, you know, balance sheet, you know, opportunity for each household to not think, wow, if my money could earn more by being saved or invested, I should do that. But one of the reasons why I wouldn't is because on a Saturday, if I did have an emergency and my money was in a high-yield savings at a bank somewhere other than where my checking account is. I couldn't get it out. So it's really solving systemic issues. And and I don't think that there's, fortunately, much consideration for the current, you know, who's making it work question, so much as it is, can financial services meet me where I am? And can we get away from this nine to five um, sort of mindset where money's locked in a vault, only available when the bank feels like giving it to me? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think it's one of the things that sometimes is almost hardest to... You know, we work with lots of banks all the time and kind of our ventures work. And it's one of the hardest things almost to communicate sometimes to senior stakeholders, like the urgency sometimes that people need money. Like lot, not everyone has these big reserves of cash to to kind of fall back on when times get tough and, and being able to move and access money instantly can can be life-changing. So 
I'd love to chat about this all day. You guys are doing super, super interesting work and, and fingers crossed kind of for, for the future of the launch. It sounds like you guys are going on to great things, but um, I'm going to have to move us on to our next story now. The next story is taken from the FT. Again, has been covered in multiple different places. This is Metro Bank find a £925 million rescue deal. The troubled UK bank has found £150 million of new equity on top of £175 million bail-in note issuance and £600 million of debt refinancing. The new equity comes from Colombian billionaire Jaime Galinsky-Bacal raising his 9.2% stake to 53% and becoming the controlling shareholder. Following the move, the PRA issued a brief statement saying it welcomes the steps taken by Metro Bank to strengthen its capital position. The bank is now reportedly looking to sell up to £3 billion of residential mortgages with interested banks including Barclays, NatWest, Lloyds and Santander. Critics of Metro, including its co-founder, point to their unsustainable reliance on a branch network. However, new controlling shareholder Bacall rebutted this in a recent interview with the FT, saying it's a model that works. Anissa, where did it all go wrong for Metro, do you think? I mean... I think when we look when we look at it from a perspective of the fallout, what's happened and what's happened and taken place over the last week, we can definitely certainly look towards the share price. For example, it's fallen from fifty three percent in twenty eighteen and a further ninety five percent in twenty nineteen, and that largely happened as a result of the accounting scandal. And I think when we look at uh, sort of the issues that Metro Bank has faced over the last five to six years, it has been sort of a merry-go-round of scandal of sort of holding that down and then sort of, okay, we're up against it again. And it's sort of taken place. I think the issue that we're facing right now is the uh, sort of what's going on on the ground in terms of the cost of living crisis, the mortgages now having to sort of being reported to be sold to interested banks like the likes of Barclays, NatWest and such. And it's sort of as a bank that sort of held itself as a bank for the people, a champion of the people, I think that at at its crux, that's where Metro Bank has gone wrong. Um, It's how it's sort of delivering for the people and what that looks like and coming together with that level of honesty to the people rather than what's taking place in front of our, our eyes, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it's a really complex, really complex one. I think as you and as you say, it's been like a sort of drip, drip, drip with Metro Bank over a prolonged period of time. Um, Mandy, what, what's been your perspective on this? Obviously, this, the news has been coming out over a couple of days now. So, has, have you been following it? What's been your take? Yeah, I mean, I'm following it from the perspective of you know we, we care deeply about the high streets. I mean, part of the um, position that we're in nationwide is that we do back our branch network. And we do that for the communities that they serve as much as the services that they provide. And so when I look at, you know, the, the metro banks on the high street, it's sad that there's going to be a scrutiny placed upon them. But they've done some interesting things in their branches. You know, they've they've been very, very innovative and not been, you know, not made a secret about that. But we've got colleagues that, you know, I've got colleagues that work there. So I'll be really disappointed if, um, you know, this, they, they can't turn the situation around because, it matters. They've got some fabulous locations and high streets that are very, very dominant. And we hope you can stay that way. Yeah, I mean, I understand. I think they've currently got 76 branches um, and apparently they're still planning to open 11, 11 new ones um, in the North England by 2025. So, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of to see kind of whether they whether they stay on that trajectory. I think when we think about the branches, I, I totally agree and I hear you, Mandy. I think um, there's certainly many exciting things that they have brought to the high street, particularly under the sort of umbrella of so many different banks have been shutting down branches over the last decade, over the last 15 years or so. I think the issue sort of to hand is what is that offering to the customers and how can they remain competitive in, and while simultaneously battling all these different issues, I think the wider sort of idea and discussion to really be had is the idea of transparency. I think when we had the financial crash 
back in 2008, fintech really took a rise in sort of being a, a champion and a bastion of the people, providing a level of innovation. And that was sort of what Metro Bank were jumping on the bandwagon of. It's sort of we're providing something new, we're providing something innovative, but also giving you the comfort and the reliability of a branch of knowing what you know in terms of traditional high street banking but giving you something different and giving you something that's a little bit more innovative as well i think it's about sort of keeping up with that pace and whether that can be done in a way that can be easily integrated into today's society because what was sort of new and innovative say 10 years ago is not the same today yeah no absolutely and i suppose it's i as a survey research nerd i always love looking at the um, independent service quality survey that we have in have in the uk um i think for international listeners you know, this is a kind of big study that is undertaken to really kind of benchmark the services of the main um, financial institutions in the uk and uh, metro tops the one of the met, one of the questions specifically is around branch services and metro comes top of that one but there's also a specific question around sort of you know, online or mobile services and they come 10th in that one so to me that is the real interesting nuance to it is they excel in one specific area but you know comparatively really struggle based on that de- survey data but at least um in the other i mean i don't know stephanie is there anybody like this in in the us that is kind of still really betting on on this in person experience and sort of struggling in the online space it's a really interesting question. I think, first of all, I think speaking for the U.S. specifically and, you know, uh, what we've seen in terms of bank rescues, I can say there's, you know, we've had our share of fragility in the market, too, but we've definitely seen the contagion um, risk slow down. So I think that's good news. Um, you know, I personally hold the opinion that small regional banks are critical in reaching underserved populations. And so maintaining customer confidence, number one, is particularly important. And some physical footprint what I think uh, probably the, the bank that is most like half digital, half in-person um, and the U.S. is Capital One. And they've really grown through acquisition of small community banks so that they have the footprint, but they do a lot online as well. And I don't think it's ever been clear that one's going to beat the other. I think they're fundamentally different. And so as Mandy is going to talk about, you know, rebranding, but also being committed to branches being maintained in a location, in the U.S., I think one of our challenges is that we have thousands and thousands of banks, and perhaps there's going to be a consolidation, but the physical footprint matters for a variety of reasons. Um, will we have less and fewer locations, perhaps, as people get more confident with digital? Um, but there are things that you can only do inside a bank branch, like a safety deposit box, and those things are still valuable. So I'm not sure that the answer is clear in the U.S. market. What I can say is we definitely see our fair share, like Unisa said, of fintech interest. And I think that's driving people to come back and ask this important question, which is what creates a stable bank, right? What do I need to know about the fundamentals of the bank? And honestly, the truth is banks primarily are a derivative of trust. There isn't a dollar for dollar reserve. There never has been. That wasn't ever the design in the U.S. or anywhere in the world. Um, and so trust, in, and I think, is it at an all-time high in terms of importance and priority? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that point you make around you know, branches being especially important to certain groups mm-hmm. is, is something that comes up time and time again on 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 the show. I thought it was particularly interesting um, back when I first started working at 11FS, so quite you know, back in 2019 odd or so, we were talking a lot about something in the UK called the RBS Remedies Fund, um, which was, you know, as in the, as a result of the issues that NatWest got into, you know, there were big funds that were being allocated. And Metro Bank was a recipient initially of the largest amount of money that the government sort of issued as part of that process, which was intended to increase competition in the, the business banking space. And a large part of Metro Bank's submission was that they were going to open, I think at the time they pledged to open 30, 30 new branches, really kind of focusing on kind of the importance of digital plus in-person services for small business owners. So I think that was kind of, to me, a really specific example of, of in the public domain, people kind of recognising how important branches are to particularly kind of small business owners. Um, and again, I, I, I look back and see, you know, they had to actually, Metrobank had to hand back a substantial chunk of that funding because they couldn't actually deliver on those pledges. And, and to me, that almost seems like one of the first kind of visible signs that they were kind of maybe committing to things that were too ambitious or, or kind of not quite having the right balance between kind of the stretch of their strategy and their ability to deliver on it. So, yeah, I think it's it's a really, obviously you hope that they do well. Mandy, do you have any 
Mystic Meg anticipation of what you think they'll do next or where they'll go from here? It's a really difficult one to call, isn't it? Because I think we are in different times now and, you know, let's see. But I think you hit the nail on the head and this is something that I'm, you know, really championing is that whilst we may be backing at Nationwide, the branch, it forms part of a system for a customer and it can't be the only thing you back because it has to be the digital experience. And for us as well, there's there's a role for telephony and there's a role for chat. So all of that combined makes up the experience that, you know, people will trust and you know and want to be a part of one one element alone i think is 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 going to be tough but you know let, let's see and as i say i, I like you i really hope it, it can turn around yeah absolutely okay well we're just going to take a quick pause here we'll be back shortly hello it's benjamin here director of research and strategy at 11fs Earlier this year, we published Building the Future of Home Buying, a report that calls out financial services for making the biggest, most significant purchase of most people's lives way more difficult than it needs to be. Well, fast forward to today and things haven't changed. Mortgage offerings are more important now than they have ever been, with sky-high interest rates in many countries forcing home buyers to shop around. We've got clients asking us how to move quickly to fix the problem and get a game-changing product to market. Want to know the secret? Step one. Download the report at 11fs.com slash homebuying. Step two, get in touch at 11fs.com slash ventures. Speak soon. Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news, a note to go check our most recent Fintech Insider Insights show. 11FS's own CEO, David Embrier, and CTO, Ewan Silver, have a fireside chat to unpick what we mean when we say the services have fallen out of financial services. That might seem like a kind of strange topic, considering you can't have financial services without the services. But at 11FS, we believe there's a real service gap in the industry where companies are fixated over products or customer numbers or data rather than the customer themselves and how best to serve them. David and Ewan discuss how businesses can enable themselves to put the services back into what they do and the challenges facing them. So go check out that podcast in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this one. Let's get back into the news. So our next story, we've taken this one from Creative Boom, but again, lots of coverage all over the place. Nationwide unveil biggest rebrand in 30 years. Britain's biggest building society has unveiled its first major rebrand in over 30 years in a bid to challenge shareholder-owned banks. Nationwide's mutual status means they are member-owned, and earlier this year they shared £340 million of profit by giving 3.4 million members £100 in cash. The new-look Nationwide logo drops the capital N and removes Building Society from its branding. Nationwide have also renewed their branch promise, saying if we have a branch in your town or city, we'll still be there until at least 2026. The rebrand follows a similar exercise from Wise earlier this year and coincides with a refresh from Revolut to coincide with their launch of the Revolut 10 app. Nationwide currently has over 16.16 million members and a £272 billion balance sheet. Before we have a quick chat about this, let's get a reaction from Maureen Will-Jones, Executive Creative Director here at LemonFest, who had this to say. So rebranding an incumbent bank or building society in the UK right now is a pretty fine balancing act. I think at a very, very basic level, retail customers already understand a bit of the design shorthand for, I guess, traditional and trustworthy versus new intelligent service. And I think we see the trends around usage and wallet share follow suit. I think the rebrand for Nationwide has been pretty successful in striking this balance. If we break down some of the elements, let's start with the logo, the actual emblem there. It's lost a bit of personality, but it's gained a lot in versatility. I think any rebrand has to make that work as a beautiful app icon, much the same as 10 foot wide on a building. And I think we see from this, like we have from other brands who've been around a while and rebranded, like Burger King, they've actually looked to the past when finding a simpler type treatment for that word mark, and that's a nice nod to their heritage. I think it'll be interesting, though, to see how that vibrant secondary palette is actually used, to see whether the illustration style that feels new now still does in a year or two. And I personally, as someone that's worked with brand guidelines, really hope there isn't one of those pesky brand rules that now presents the use of an uppercase N for Nationwide. Andy, obviously, um, we've all got very excited about the kind of like brand and design nuances of this, but would love to get you know, your on the ground perspective of, of 
of what the impact is for for, for nationwide as an organisation. You, you've had, as we alluded to, I think the same branding now for, I think, around over 30 years. So why is now the right time? What is it that you're looking to achieve? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, what what I would say is this is um, this has gone down extremely well, you know, internally and and from the customers that we've spoken to so far, it's it's been really really well received. And I suppose ultimately, what you want from any rebrand is to make sure that you're relevant for the 16 million members that we've already got, but we're also looking forward to those that we want to gain. And that has been a very deliberate move on our part to make sure that the service, the trust, all the you know. The, the values that we've got today remain very relevant for those new customers that we want to attract as we go forward. So there's definitely been a real nod to modernity, relevance, and and at a time where we are, you know, we are putting our branch network front and centre, but absolutely as part of the system that I described earlier of a great digital experience, you know, really brilliant colleagues that help customers at a time when they need them. So the brand relaunch forms part of kind of three or four almost signature pieces that we want to deliver. And some of that has been the fairer share that you've described there. And that's the the reward back to, you know, those members that hold current account savings, current account mortgages, and really committing to the fact that they, you know, we are owned by our members. And therefore, you know, we every single penny we spend, everything we do is in service to them. And we we are really, really proud of that. And what this was always designed to do was, you know, create a new conversation, which is definitely done and and make sure that that relevance point comes through really strong. And and it looks to have done exactly that. Yeah, no, I have zero design expertise, but I think you know, our design team will be um, super complimentary about it. I suppose the thing that I'm personally really interested in, you know, I've had the pleasure over multiple years now of chatting to people who work at Nationwide. I know how passionate genuinely passionate people are about the fact that you are a building society i wonder how you you've dropped that explicitly kind of from the from the brand so to me that seems like the most interesting part I, i'm sure that wasn't an easy choice and what do you kind of see as the trade-offs of that being you know, how do you kind of still communicate that through to your customers it, it was interesting because obviously as part of any brand refresh you do you know it, it an immense amount of research to understand what matters to some and what matters to others being a building society matters hugely to all of us and if you speak to anybody at Nationwide or if you speak to the customers they'll be able to tell you that in the way that you've just described it too. Building society on the logo has only been on for about five years actually of the 36 that we've had the logo building society only is is relatively recent and dropping it was was is simply to say that it, it actually matters more to some than others for sure because ultimately some people would say I want to be part of the building society, but I also want great service, great value, great products, you know, great digital experience. Um, and when you look at it, the, the kind of the logo, the simplicity point was absolutely critical. And so dropping it was was is never not about talking about being a building society. It was more about staring at the logo, recognising it first off and, and almost making it, as I said earlier, much more modern. Yeah, no, absolutely. Stephanie, what was... I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at it. I mean, what was your take on the rebrand? Um, I did take a look. And I suppose, yeah, what Mandy's described in terms of the the role of a building society. Well, listen, I think part of rebranding is continuously redefining your identity relative to your customer base, which to me, this is very much what the intention was as I listened to Mandy talk and as I look what was done. And a rebrand doesn't necessarily mean the fundamentals change. So I, I what I love about it is Finding ways to make it easier for somebody to find what they're looking for, know what you offer in terms of financial services, potentially do more with the bank than the single thing they might have done previously. Because the consumer mindset changes over time, the necessity of staying relevant topically and being able to engage a customer thematically around how they think and talk about the financial products in their lives, it does require periodic reinvestment. I've seen many brands in the U.S. steadfast. 150-year-old companies, some of them mutually owned, some not, in financial services do the same thing. And I think it's really transformational. Um, now, sometimes it'll go alongside with either new commitments or new products, and that's interesting too. But the identity of a company, while it may still have its same pillars and values, is evolving as the identity of the consumer changes. And that's something that is, I think, actually in some ways happening faster than it ever did before. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really, really true point. Anissa, What's your verdict? I love it. 
in short. Um, <laughs> I think in, That's very short. <laughs> in, in short, I think in practice, uh, in my past life, uh, I've worked in marketing, I've worked also in PR and I've, I've managed uh, very large clients. And, and part of that is also redefining what it means when it comes to financial communications, what it means to be a brand that's relatable, that's accessible, that isn't alienating the initial base but it's also incredibly inclusive. We're looking forward, not backward. And I think the fact that, you know, it, it's such a beloved part of the high street nationwide. It's, um, it's really community-based, community-focused. I think that's clearly very evident in its profit sharing as well. And I think it's a really exciting, bold way um, and dynamic way of really reaching out to their core customer base and saying, look, we're here to stay. We're still as relevant as we always were. Um, but it's also about reaching that hand out and taking more people on that journey as well. So yeah, I, I love it. I think it's great. One definite convert there, Mandy. I, mean, I suppose we, when we teed up the story, we we framed it as you know, a move to compete or to kind of you know, increase your competition. As Is that fair? Is, is, is that a fair way of positioning it? Or is it is it less about competition and more just about you guys looking at yourselves? Oh, no, no, look, seriously, we want to be seen as a, you know, a, a genuine competitor because we've got the scale to those that are already out there. And, and we do see that. And certainly, as we've seen, you know, volumes of closures, it's really surprising that, you know, everyone would say, you know, as, 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 you know, as banks close, people don't want an alternative. Well, actually, at a time of need, that kind of real moment of truth, we talked earlier about fraud or whatever that might be, Actually going in and seeing somebody face to face, regardless of age, actually, is is really key. And so that point of reassurance of having a branch is not often that I want to go in all the time. And because generally people don't actually. But I do want to know that when I when I need you most, I can come in and see you. And so this kind of idea of a good way to bank, which was is something that we were standing behind, is twofold really, is about offering real value, brilliant service great opportunity to be a member and enjoy what a membership offers as well as doing good you know being on a high street and making sure that you're supporting the communities the social investment part is is key in that context so you know we, we definitely do not want to lose what we bring to a community as well as being a very relevant choice for people to come and join us and and, and enjoy you know the offering because we offer brilliant products you know, we don't want to be seen as just mortgages and savings. This is way beyond that, absolutely way beyond that. And so the commitment to branch is 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 definitely about kind of that point of differentiation and distinction at a time when others aren't committing to that. And we can do that because we're a mutual and we can, you know, make different decisions because of the, we don't have a shareholder. And also the, the way our property estate is made up allows us to make different decisions from a um, from that perspective. So you know, I feel very blessed because I see our branches are vibrant. They are busy. What I don't see is kind of, you know, soulless offices, Qu quite the opposite, actually. And the volumes of accounts that we're still opening face to face, you'd be surprised about over a third of new accounts are opened in branch. So most people would think it's a digital offering. And for some, it still is. But there's still a group of people that still want to walk in and be seen face to face, which is fascinating, really. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, like, so you say a third of accounts are still being opened in branch. Are, are yeah, there any particular, any, does that skew to either like any particular types of customers or any particular types of accounts? I think you would you would assume that it would be kind of loaded towards more vulnerable, those that need it most, maybe the elderly. But actually, we don't we don't necessarily see that. We do we do see say kind of a typical eleven year old really enjoying that first experience of going into a bank with their mum and dad, you know, opening up their first first current account. You know, don't don't underestimate that. And and interestingly, uh, we were looking at the data in a very short space of time. The branches have saved our customers from losing four million pounds worth of their savings to fraud because of what the way they've intervened. Because it's much harder when you're in front of someone. They have a you know instinctively they know something isn't right as well as all the necessary checks that they do. They they make a real difference. And so we've. We, we definitely, you know, don't make no mistake. What you do in a branch today is different to what you would have done in a branch even three or four years ago. So we, we're not, you know, we're not immune to that. So what, what I mean by that is it's not necessarily your traditional cash in, cash out type transactions. 
we're definitely seeing more digital conversations, more education in that context. So we've had to multi-skill our teams in order to respond to that. And they've they've done that brilliantly. Yeah, no, that's that's not surprising at all to me to, to hear. But no, I think it, it really resonates. I, I'm already, it marks me out as like a finance nerd, but I'm already excited about taking my son to open his first account but I, I he's, only, he's only two so I don't know maybe by the time he's old enough mate will branch just still be there I don't know I really hope so because yeah I can still remember going in with my with my parents absolutely I could remember definitely yeah I could remember walking into the local walking to the branch that was like near my house that's how close it was I remember getting my checkbook I remember the whole experience um, now, maybe that's because I like live and breathe payments and financial services, but I think most people remember that. And I feel this conflict, you know, in the U.S., we have some new platforms, Greenlight, Step, that are really designed for kids. And I want to enable my kids now. They're six and eight, my daughters. And I'm like, do I walk them into the branch? Because right now I can't walk to one. Or do I do this digital thing? And I think, honestly, there's going to be a combination of both. I think that's the new reality, right? You won't necessarily exclusively work with a single financial partner. I know even now I don't. So um, I think it's just going to be really interesting to see when 2026 rolls around, Mandy, what you're talking about, you know, in terms of the the physical piece. I think that's fair. It's been interesting because we've been doing something called Money Lessons, which is where we go out to schools. This is our branch colleagues, go out to schools. They talk to about 70,000 children now. It supports the curriculum. You'd be surprised how I think there's an assumption that, you know, probably on, on some of our parts that your kids know more about money than they do. And actually when we go out and we talk to the children and the idea is to intervene on say gambling and making sure that they understand that, you know, looking after money, saving is important, fraud. And it's been a really, really, uh, it's been brilliant for the branch teams to get involved in, but again, it's kind of that giving back. And I think that the more we can do of that, and that's where you, you know, I do think a blend between physical and digital. I think that's your sweet spot really. Yeah, no, I think it's it's super, super important. Um, again, I think we could probably talk about this for the whole rest of the show. Sadly, I think we have to move on, but um, kudos to, to the team. Mandy, congrats on, on the role. I'm sure it's been a very busy week, so fingers crossed it has all of the impact that, that you hope. Thank you very much. Our next story um, comes from FinTech Futures, and that is Fluce, probably pronounce that disastrously, partner with Tarabut to launch an open banking digital lending service in Bahrain. A new partnership will see the launch of an open banking-enabled income verification product offered by Bahraini lender Flus. This gives institutions direct access to customer income and eliminates the need for customers to submit salary certificates. The Dubai-based Tarabut says it's the first open banking digital lending service in Bahrain and hopes this will drastically improve the process in the region. Flus was a partnership between MasterCard and Payments International Enterprise launched in 2022. It is a digital first lender offering short term personal loans without the need for a bank account. Anissa obviously probably butchered all of those names in the introduction. So you did fabulously. Oh, thank you very much. But um, (laughs) apart from pronouncing things and, and helping getting things right, I mean, can you talk us through this a bit more? You know, we're seeing this kind of thing as, as more commonplace in the UK, the US, other areas, but you know, how big a step forward is is this kind of offering in, in Bahrain? Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. I think, it, I think it really purports to be such a major key player of what sort of the landscape of uh, fintech looks like here. I mean, something that sort of, I think we don't really sort of touch upon enough is having a comparative analysis and study of the fact that the Bahraini population as it stands is 1.4 million. I think when we look at the GCC collectively, it stands to be something around ballpark 70 million. So it's sort of more or less the population size of the UK. Um, I think when we're looking at and looking forward at what this brings and in terms of putting a step forward, I think it's a huge deal, largely because it's just sort of paving the way to better informed access for a larger number of people. And in doing so, it means that we're increasing financial inclusion, um, but doing so in a sort of sustained manner. Um, The way these systems work across the GCC look very different to that of the US um, and the UK, and I'm sure we're going to tap into that later. But it means that people are able to make more informed choices. And the idea of sort of encompassing lending into that now is sort of moving the dial and the trajectory of what fintech looks like here in terms of having a sort of one-stop shop 
And that's the way things are going with regards to fintech and finance. So having access to things like lending, investing, personal finance, having a checking account, for example, or a savings account. So it's really moving at a very fast pace comparatively. And I think that's largely not only because of the support that the Central Bank of Bahrain has been able to provide, along with other institutions in um, the UAE, but also thanks to sort of the idea of having a smaller population with very similar demographics where you can have that level of rollout and escalation in such a way. Yeah, no, I think that's um, super interesting to kind of understand the uh, the context of both Bahrain individually and, and the region as a whole. Yeah, when I first saw that stat around like 1.4 million people, my brain was just like, how how does anything, it's just such a, a, a mad like population to have to launch something for. Um, I suppose one thing I'd like to pick your brains on is uh, when we you gloss over it and we think, you know, short-term lending, no bank account needed, you could probably imagine people's minds jumping to kind of things that have had similar structures in the past that maybe haven't necessarily been the best financial products. Um, you have pretty bad rep into the UK and the US, some of these types of like short-term lending, no bank connections. I'm assuming Fluce is different to that. Like, can you talk us through like how are they, how are they going to make that work in the region? You know, they're, they're treading new ground right as well. So how do they manage that space between making lending easy, but not lending where me where they shouldn't. Yeah, totally. And I, I mean, it's completely understandable when we look at sort of, for example, the the infrastructure surrounding sort of payday loans with the idea of sort of getting money quickly with very few checks and balances and sort of the fallout and repercussions of that. Just from a societal level, it was disastrous entirely. And I think when we look at that and sort of comparatively, as I mentioned, the sort of government support that initiatives like FALUS have is sort of, it's very much an integrated part of the system. And there are very many checks and balances. I think when it comes to sort of making loans accessible without encouraging irresponsible lending, there are certain sort of hurdles in place to ensure that doesn't happen. So we're talking about things like client profiling. We're talking about things like the current debt of the individual of the customer and what that may look like what their sort of checks and balances are in terms of their payment plans so a a key example for a customer in the gcc or sort of in bahrain the uae etc would be if a check were to sort of bounce here let's say you were paying your rent and the check bounces that would then signal something into the wider integrated system that something's wrong and that actually then gets highlighted to and is sort of flagged with with regards to the government um and it's as i mentioned it's largely because the population here across the gcc is quite small for each country so an integrated system is a lot easier so the trickle down of let's say government support or a central bank supporting um a fintech for example gives room for sort of a level of accessibility, but adoptability as well. So people can sort of breathe a little bit easily in knowing that it's been co-signed by a government entity. But at the same time, it also means by integrating that government, there are sort of massive repercussions to not being able to pay something on time as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can I can sort of start to imagine, I think. Yeah, Stephanie, obviously we've been talking about Income verification, you guys launched Verify. Is this something that you're kind of listening to and thinking like, oh, we could do this? You know, what, what's your thoughts on income verification as, a, as an offering? Well, interesting question. I'm a certified financial planner, so I started my career thinking about financial advice. And so many financial products are derivatives of income verification, which I think is important. However, the status of your income and that it's valid and that you have it changes minute to minute, right? And I've seen so many circumstances where folks are at the closing to buy a mortgage or to get a loan and you know they need a favor from someone to still prove that they have income verification. It's like underwriting, I think, has a fundamental flaw in that it presumes the facts persist, right? And so I think there's a fundamental challenge in the U.S. globally of the fact that people don't as often stay in the same jobs they were in for five or 10 or 20 years. Job continuity, economic impact, there's lots of reasons why you know, income verification isn't always the answer, at least in its entirety, to determining if you're underwriting properly and if there's certitude in the ability to repay. 
And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got folks like my mom who's retired, who doesn't have any income, but could absolutely repay a loan. And so there's just these black box areas that I think are challenges. Nonetheless, I think, you know, seeing the opportunity in developing countries and emerging countries to actually begin to have a sort of stable layer of financial infrastructure that could understand and catalog activity, behaviors, data for better decision-making, it's really powerful. So I think there's just a lot of complexity at the heart of a question as simple as income verification. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's one of the really interesting dynamics of this split that we're seeing in financial services more broadly now as well, that, you know, you have, um, just looking at the UK, for example, you know, I have my, my salary comes into a fairly traditional bank, sadly, not nationwide, Mandy, I apologize. And then I pay my bills from that account. And then I move my fund money out to you know, a fintech where you know I can transact easily, share money, move your money easily. I, we've seen this trend, I think, increase in the UK and, and elsewhere. So for me, it it creates this really interesting dynamic where banks have this sort of view of the salary as it comes in. They can see my my income land, whether that's you know, monthly or if you're you know, earning in a different pattern and, and fintechs can't. And you're seeing this kind of split between like the banks that have the income information or data, but don't necessarily always have the the data structures or the intelligent data structures to kind of analyze and crunch that. And the fintechs, again, massive sweeping stereotypes here, who quite often have smarter data structures behind them or ability to crunch data, but don't have access to, to the salary. So I think it's a really interesting split that we're seeing in the market. Mandy, I don't know if you have any perspectives from, from a nationwide, you, you guys do have an interesting position, I assume as well, where you probably have more people paying their salaries into a into a nationwide account. Yeah, and what we know is that kind of depth of relationship really matters because for all of the, you know, what you've just described there is you you wouldn't be able to have a loan with nationwide unless you had your current account because we want the, you know, you to experience the full relationship. So it's an interesting model that that is being described. But I do recognise what you're saying where, you know, depending upon various age groups, they'll almost have their main bank account and then maybe another one to play, as you describe it. So, so that isn't an unusual model now. And therefore, it does put pressure on, you know, all, all of us as, um, as financial services providers to make sure that you are offering ease of payment, because that is generally what is forcing others to consider elsewhere. You know, what is what is easy to do that might not be with their incumbent provider? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, similar to our chat around branches and, and coming back to kind of chat about that in 2026, maybe we should we should leap back down to this one in, in 2026 as well. Okay. Um, have to move us now on to the section of our show called Big Click Energy, which is a quickfire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Just one story in the section this week that's taken from Finextra, and that is Spanish banks test out a digital euro which could pave the way for an EU rollout. Using existing payments infrastructure, Spanish banks have been trialling the use of a digital euro. So far, the tests have demonstrated a use case for the digital currency with the view to expanding across the eurozone in future. The European Central Bank have been keen on an interconnected payment system, and these trials are a step closer to making it a reality. I am probably the absolute opposite of an expert in blockchain and Web3. Um, so go check out our, our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider, if, if, if you want to kind of get that lens. But I think this genuinely is a, is a really interesting proof of concept. Started, I think, in around November 2022 with around 30 banks, plus some other kind of key infrastructure partners kind of coming together to explore this with a specific focus on trying to explore, again, this idea of could you have a new currency being offered via existing rails? And these results do seem to suggest that you could leverage existing payment rails rather than having to kind of build net new, which I think is, again, for someone who's not immersed in this space day to day, I think that's kind of almost like the assumption that you might make is that you know, new currency means new rails, which means new services for customers to have to adopt and, and new things for people to have to explain. So this to me feels feels really exciting from a customer adoption potential that you potentially might be able to, you know, within Spain or kind of elsewhere in the in the EU, to potentially have new currency options, but delivered via more familiar or already established kind of payment rails. So you have to kind of wait and see what the European Central Bank decides to do as well. I think they've got some research they're expecting to launch in the next couple of months around the digital euro as well. But uh, an exciting time for CBDCs uh, generally. So again, check out our, our sister podcast if you'd like to find out more. Okay, now it's time for the and finally section of the show. 
a look at something normally a little bit more offbeat from the news this week. We've taken this story from the BBC. US prosecutors file 23 charges against politician George Santos, including wire fraud and identity theft. The Republican politician is being charged on multiple accounts of defrauding his campaign donors by using their credit cards for personal transactions. He is also accused of falsely inflating his campaign receipts with non-existent loans. This follows 13 charges in May for laundering campaign funds. We've been chatting, I suppose, a fair bit on on the rest of the show about payment fraud and on, on all the sorts of kind of things like that. Um, I've probably been living under a rock because I actually had not come across this this character before. Stephanie, is is this is this my fault? Has this been a big story for ages, or is this is this just just blared up? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a global story. Um, I don't even know if it's a national story. But I live in New York, which is where uh, he is districted, and um, it's definitely been a local story for quite some time. Well, I can't obviously comment on the state of American politics. Um, it's been newsworthy. And I think one of the peculiarities of the situation is that despite these allegations and charges, which seem to have you know substantial heft behind them, he remains on essentially active duty, which is a bit of a question mark, right? Um, I would presume that under those circumstances, perhaps a politician wouldn't remain in seat. But that is my presumption. I am not uh, you know, sort of qualified to say. Um, but it certainly has been a topic as of late, uh, and particularly locally as we've gone from, you know, identifying problems to actually seeing charges formally filed. Yeah, no, it just seems, I, I was reading about it before we started the show, it just seems absolutely mad. So apparently he's been accused of lying about his college degrees, his work experience. He apparently claimed to have worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, which apparently is not true. I mean, I could stand correct on all of these things, but this is just what I read. He apparently falsely claimed his grandparents had survived the Holocaust and it created a fake animal charity that he used to siphon away cash meant for a veteran's dying dog. This, it just it just sounds absolutely bonkers. I, I don't know if that's... I think I've only even scratched the, scratched the surface of this. Mandy, is there somebody that Nationwide would be would be happy to bank? <laughs> no. I, you, know, you know, when you read anything like this, and, and I, like you, I'm not familiar with George, you, you do start to realise how kind of your... Whether that be the organisational brand, your personal brand really really matters from a character perspective and trust and 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 ultimately once you lose any of that aspect it's really hard to regain and when and when you read anything like this I and mean, I, like I say I can't comment on on this case and, and, and nor do I know if it truth false don't know but but like anything I just know that um you know working for a brand like Nationwide it was kind of I saw all of your kind of facial expressions, which I'm sorry that the other people can't. You almost, there's a different facial expression when you say a particular brand to another. And that actually is what's quite endearing, really, when you know there's a brand you trust. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anissa, do you, do you have any, any observations on Mr. Santos's interesting behaviour? I mean... <laughs> I mean... I feel, I feel like it's... It's quite the painting he's he's put together out here with the brushstrokes of, of and embellishments of all sorts. Um, look, what I can probably say is I, I just like um, Mandy and Stephanie, I can't really speak to knowing an awful lot about this particular story. I have definitely sort of heard, heard trickle downs in the news here and there, but I think what's more of a concern is you. The, and this comes back down to trust as well. As much as the idea of personal branding, it comes trust. So very much like, you know, who you choose to bank with, there's an element of trust with that. There is an element of security that's, um, you know, as an individual, as a customer, you go towards or you, you know, move towards a certain bank for whatever reason and a large element of that being trust. In a similar case, when we look at politics, a, a large amount of politics is about trust and is about who you can believe and is about is this uh, individual, is this political party able to deliver on my sort of set beliefs or the things that I believe would be great for my particular country. I think what we're seeing right now is that trust is at an all-time low in politics, whether that be across the pond um, or whether that be in the UK or otherwise. Um, and once that sort of starts to diminish or starts to be chipped away, you kind of have this idea of certain types of behavior becomes more normalized and then people become slightly more apathetic. 
and therefore there becomes little resistance to it. But I think the fact that we're sitting here, we're talking about it, I think I, I feel like I'm okay to speak for the panel and say this is quite a story. <laughs> um, it's I, I think it's certainly something, and the fact that you know, as a society, we feel that there needs to be more trust, and we need to be having sort of well-suited uh, candidates put forward is something that we need to be pushing forward with and bringing these sorts of stories to light. Yeah, absolutely. I will certainly not be lending him my credit card any anytime soon on this basis. Um, okay, to round us off, the, the race to the White House, picking up speed. You know, we've seen some independents go in or sort of starting to talk about going into the race. So um, if if you ran for president, to engender this trust that you've talked about, Anissa, what, what's your what's your campaign slogan going to be? What's going to rally the people to to your cause? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Maybe something along the lines of "Do right, act now." I like it. Strong, strong, strong. Um, Mandy, what about you? What what do you, what's going to be your what's your platform going to be? I, I think it'd have to be something about kind of you can trust me, you can rely upon me. That kind of you know, something along those lines, a bit cheesy, I'm sorry. No, all but, good. But you get the point is, you know. I get the point. I'll do what I'll say. I'll do what I'll say. I'm going to, you know, commit to, I suppose. I thought I'd vote for you based. I, I, I'm getting a strong sense of reliability from from this conversation. I would I'd vote for you. Um, Stephanie, what about you? I think for me, it would tie back to the vision and mission that we have at Orem, which is to find the freedom to build to your potential. And I think for me, it's just something I think a lot about as a first-generation American watching my dad come from another country and raise himself up here and find his footing. I think there's so much about our economic stability with each and every American wallet um, that could be a full focus of a campaign. Obviously, lots of other topics too, but that's where my heart is. That's that's a far more like genuine and compelling thing than what I would offer. I think mine would just be like <laughs> straight to the bribery, you know, vote for me, Vote for me, get pizza. That's something <laughs> like that. Like pizza is the way to the people's hearts. It's, it's certainly the way to my heart. So that's that's what I'm going to plump for. Awesome. Well, that that wraps up this week's FinTech Insider. Thank you so much to, to all of you for, for joining me. I've loved hearing all of your takes. Um, where can people find out a bit more about you and what you're working on, Stephanie? Learn more about us at Orem.io. Find me on LinkedIn or shoot us a note. Hello at Orem.io. Brilliant. Mandy? Yeah, via nationwide.co.uk. Have a look at all we've got to offer or come and see one of our people in the branches. We'd love to, we'd love to catch up. Absolutely. And Anissa, what about you? Uh, you can find me at anisazaman.com and my social handles are at Anissa Finance. Brilliant. Um, and as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or drop me an email, kate at alonafers.com. Thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at alonefirst.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.